you know, there is one conclusion that I came to after finished writing, and I think people come to the same conclusion after reading it, is that something exists. Something is out there. And the military knows about it, and they probably have pictures of it. They probably have film of it. They know that it's out there. Does the U.S. military know what they are and they're covering that up? Or do they not know what they are and they're actually covering up the fact that they don't know? Can you imagine something like that happening in the post-9-11 world? Dozens of UFOs suddenly showing up over the White House and the Capitol building in Washington. I mean, it would, our civilization would not be the same after something like that happened. When they got off the plane and they were going into the ops building, there was a sign there that says, Remember, you were never here. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to my buddy Ian for providing the theme music for this installment of the program. No website to plug, so let's just thank him once again. Big thanks to Ian. Before we dive into the program, I've got one good in-house note for you folks out there. This was supposed to be the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 6, and then we're going to roll on into the season finale. But I've done a complete 180 on that plan and we are, instead of contracting Season 6, we are expanding things just a little bit. I'll detail all that at the end of the program. So for now, just disregard all that Final Four talk, because BOA Audio Season 6 will rage onward into 2012. Now let's move on to what you're going to be hearing on this edition of BOA Audio. Our guest is prolific military fiction author Mac Maloney, and he's joining us for a discussion on his new nonfiction book, UFOs in Wartime. This is really a free-flowing conversation. I had just finished the book when I rang Mac Maloney for the interview, and I had all sorts of areas that I wanted to discuss but as it got going, it really turned into a jam session of sorts as we bounced around a lot of the big picture themes found in UFOs in wartime. Of course, we're going to cover a number of cases and trends surrounding UFO sightings by soldiers during times of hot and cold conflicts, including the Foo Fighters, the Scandinavian Ghost Rockets, and Scare Ships, the Battle of L.A., the 1950 D.C. Flyovers, reports of UFOs during the Vietnam War, and UFO rumors that came out of the Gulf War. Those are just some of the areas covered in the vast window of war that Mac Maloney researched. We're also going to examine some of the bigger picture issues surrounding UFOs, such as their potential origins and motivations, UFO disclosure, and the modern problem of solving whether the UFOs are ours or theirs. Altogether, it is a candid conversation with a richly talented writer who has recently turned his gaze toward the UFO phenomenon and uncovered a startling, unnerving, and persistent mystery. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Mac Maloney, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Mac Maloney grew up in the Dorchester section of Boston and was taught to read and write 
by the nuns at St. Anne's School. His father was a veteran of World War II and used to read military books all the time. As a child, Max started reading them too, along with a lot of science fiction. He received a B.S. in journalism and a graduate degree in filmmaking from Emerson College. He was a sports reporter for two years after college before joining Corporate America as a publicist for General Electric. Max started writing in 1984 and has been doing it full-time since 1987, penning over 30 books. His website is www.macmaloney.com. Check it out. With all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 30th, 2011. Mac Maloney, talking about UFOs in wartime on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. And we've got a very exciting installment of the program lined up for you here this week. Our guest is accomplished fiction writer Mac Maloney. He has written over 30 books in the uh, sci-fi military realm and has turned his gaze now towards UFOs with his first nonfiction book in over 25 years. And that is, of course, the new book, UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know. And it really chronicles a whole bunch of UFO encounters experienced by not just the U.S. military, but various other militaries throughout really... The, I guess you could say the 20th century, really, with some key stuff uh, prior to that. And really interesting stuff, really fascinating stuff, quite a collection, and really a great book for the holiday season, especially uh, if you've got somebody in your family who has doubts about UFOs. This is the perfect book to pick up and hand to them and say, here, man, read this. There's plenty of evidence in here for UFOs. It's a, it's a compelling book. It is uh, maddening at times, and I'll get, I'll get into that in a little bit, but it's, it's not maddening on Mac's part. It's maddening just in the sense that here is all this amazing evidence, and, and we're still sitting here with no idea what's going on with the UFO phenomenon. Mac's done a great job of compiling this evidence. And by the time you finish it, you're like, my God, how are we so far behind the curve here on, on getting to the bottom of this? So it's, it's remarkable in that sense, and it's a real thrill to have him on the program. The book comes out December 6th, so hopefully by the time you're listening to this, you'll be able to get your hands on it. Welcome to the program, Mac. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Tim. I'm glad to be here. Well, we usually start out with, you know, the bio, the background. As I said, you're quite an accomplished fiction writer. You know, give us a little bit of the bio background. Who is Mac Maloney, and and what led you to take a look here at the UFO phenomenon? Well, uh, like you say, I've been uh, writing full-time for about 25 years or so, um, and it's uh, mostly been fiction, uh, military Fiction, a little, some science fiction, but but mostly military fiction along the same lines as Tom Clancy. And but I had always been interested in UFOs, even as a kid. And I was um, uh, having a, a conversation with my editor one day, and and I was just kind of spitballing ideas, as they say. And and I said, you know, it seems interesting that UFOs show up a lot more frequently during wartime than uh, during, during peacetime. And we talked about it a little bit, and he said, you know, why don't you look into that a little bit more? So I did, and it turned out that, you know, uh, a case can be made that there seems to be this kind of extraordinary um, aspect of UFOs that they seem to be watching us closer than usual uh, in times of war. So I just thought that might be something to uh, to write about, do a nonfiction book about. I I, I had some UFO elements in a couple of my uh, uh, military novels, but um, this was a whole new field, and um, so three years later, here we are. Wow, wow, and it's always interesting when someone sort of 
first gets, as you say, you've always had an interest, but, you know, when they first really start digging into this, where did you go for your information? Because, you know, the UFO field is, is a minefield of, of insanity. Uh-huh. So it's, 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 you know, it's almost impossible sometimes to really get to the bottom of this because you, you go one direction and then you get led in a whole different direction. And the next thing you know, you find out the guy that led you in the first direction is a liar or something. Uh-huh. So it's like, oh, my God, I just wasted six months reading this guy's books. And it turns out he's not even, you know. Uh-huh. Not even a graduate from Harvard or something. <laughs> so, right, exactly. So, what, um, what, you know, how did you go about uh, investigating the UFO phenomenon? The first person I got in touch with was uh, an author named um, Keith Chester. Oh yeah, Keith's a good guy, yeah, good friend. And he uh, wrote a um, a book called uh, Strange Company, which is really the definitive book on um, on Foo Fighters during World War II. And um, I just kind of wrote to him out of the blue, and next thing you know, we were on the phone talking, and and um, he kind of uh, led me in the right direction on, 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 you know, how to do the research, who to talk to, um, how he went about putting together his book is kind of how I went about putting together this book. And, and he, in turn, uh, introduced me to uh, Jerry Clark, Jerome Clark, who, you know, is, um, we've never met, but, you know, I consider him a, a friend now because we spoke a number of times on the phone, and we emailed back and forth. And um, between uh, talking to those two guys, getting their books, and then getting other books that they recommended, the next thing I knew, my office was, you know, full of books. And I would just go through them and, and, and try to pick out um, UFO sightings that seemed to match what we were trying to get at, which is that UFO sightings spike during times of war or when we're just about to go to war. And sure enough, I just started compiling these stories, and uh, finally we had enough to uh, to fill the book. I, I also went online a lot, you know, these days. This is uh, what you can do. Mm-hmm. I don't think we could have done this book 20 years ago, to tell you the truth. I, I think it would have taken much longer time 20 years ago. But now you can just, you know, type in anything, and you'll get a whole slew of stories. So it was really a question of having a lot of research and then distilling it all down and trying to put it in chronological order. To, to again to make this point that uh, UFO sightings spike during wartime. Yeah, yeah. You said you had an interest. I guess I, at the risk of really sort of like you know I hate to use the word believer, but like where did you stand on on UFOs as you went into this, and did your perspective change as you did more and more research? Well, I I have never seen a UFO. Uh, my my wife has seen a UFO before we were married, and um, I know other people who have seen them, but. I was a believer for for one really uh, um, one big reason, and, and and what that was was I have an older brother who was a lifer in the Air Force, and he had a uh, UFO sighting uh, back in the late '60s while he was working on a um, fighter, a jet fighter uh, at a air base in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, they used to work on them at night because it would get so hot down there during the day, and he was out on the flight line, kind of isolated with three or four other people. Uh, working on this fighter when this, uh, you know, UFO came down right on top of them. They were uh, so startled that they got underneath the plane and, and basically kind of hid for cover underneath the plane. And this uh, thing just uh, stayed hovering there for, you know, four or five minutes, actually, and then took off. He related the story to me later. They made the mistake of telling higher authority, uh, after, after which they were isolated, uh, put in separate rooms for three or four days, uh, civilian people came in and talked to them and, and, and didn't question them, but basically had them tell the same story, their story, over and over and over again until they finally wore them down. And at the end of it, they uh, all signed 
a statement saying that what they saw was a reentry vehicle from something that had been launched from Cape Canaveral. And they, he told me they did it just to, uh, just to, just to get out of it, just to get out of there and, um, and, and kind of put an end to it. So after he told me that story and, and knowing the person my brother is, uh, he's not something, someone who is taken to flights of fancy, let's say. He's mm-hmm. a very down to earth person. And I just figured, well, if he saw one, then, then, uh, and he believes them in them, then I believe in them too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, it's like he's just one guy in the Air Force, so you just, you know, just the multiplier factor, you know, that, that there must be tons of people who have seen them. That's the interesting part too, is the, is like, you know, the, the Air Force, it, the, the, the very nature of what they do should allow for just a myriad of UFO sightings. And, and this book really sort of uh, bears that out. So it's, 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 a, it's sort of a good avenue to go down. But a difficult one as well because, you know, a lot of these guys, they don't want to talk either because they've been told not to or certainly if they're still in the Air Force, they're not going to say anything because they, they might never fly again or something. So there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, conflicts going on in there. Right. I mean, and, and it's interesting because I guess maybe it's just the way the American military is. And I suppose for the most part, it's a good way to be. But basically what happens is if someone of higher authority in the military tells you never to speak about something again, uh, you know, the vast majority of people are never going to speak about it again. You know, I mean, they, they, they some of them may sign national security statements or non-disclosure forms or whatever. But for the most part, people take that kind of uh, oath seriously in this country and and you know it, it's a good thing but it but it, it has as you said in the opening it has held us back a lot uh to figure out exactly what this whole ufo puzzle is all about oh absolutely absolutely you make the great point at the end of the book that's you know someday if we take a fresh look at this let's just hope they don't put it in the hands of the military because they they have really uh well, you know, it's it's I guess it's a question of who they who they're working for in a sense and it's like you can't really I guess you know for the human race they've botched the job but they may not necessarily be working for the human race i don't mean they're working for aliens i just mean you know maybe they're working for the, the government the insiders of the government who you know so if they did an investigation they weren't investigating it for for the everyday people right right no i agree i mean it, it really one of the things that that one of the there's no real conclusions of the book but one of the things that stayed with me is it's this question of does the u.s military know what they are, and they're covering that up, or do they not know what they are, and then and they're actually covering up the fact that they don't know? Uh, you know, the military is always um, their excuse. Let's say is that they would look into UFOs to see if there was some kind of national security threat, and they've done this several times. And at the end of these investigations, they always say, "Well, we haven't found anything to prove they're a national security threat." Therefore, we're not investigating them anymore. So they're not taking the scientific approach to it. They're taking the national security approach to it. So on one hand, like I say, if if they know what they are, I mean, I believe that there's a cover-up. It's just the question of what are they covering up. If they know what they are, then they're covering that up. But but if they don't know what they are, it's a little frightening in a way. And they, they're just covering that up because they don't want to tell us that we can't protect you from all things. Right, right. Have you, at the risk of sort of like pin- – painting you into a corner here. Have you sort of come to any conclusion on, on that question, or are you still sort of on the fence about what, what they it's, know? It's really, everything you read, it's like 50-50. Yeah. You know, with their actions in the past, especially at the end of the 40s and the beginning of the 50s, I would have thought that, that you know, they probably don't know. They probably have no idea what what these things are, but I can I can guarantee you, 
uh, as you said again in the beginning, if, if you read the book, because this is the you know there is one conclusion that I came to after after finished writing, and I think people come to the same conclusion after reading it is that something exists, something is out there, and the and the military knows about it, and they probably have pictures of it, they probably have film of it, they know that it's out there, but probably don't know exactly what it is. Yeah, and it, it, and that, 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 that sort of like question doesn't have to be mutually exclusive either. I mean, you know, some people in the military could know what it is, and they could know, you know, way more than we do, but, but that, that could only be like a handful of people, and the, the vast majority of people in the military below them don't know anything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think if anything, that's probably the most likely scenario that it's... Or above them, group. too. That was yeah. another thing that Keith... Chester, you know, had, had, had told me about it, and I, and I believe it. I said to him, well, how could you keep this moment, this huge secret, secret, you know? And he says, well, you know, his theory, and, and it's a theory that a lot of UFO researchers have, is that, you know, there's some office somewhere deep in the Pentagon, you know, on, on the mid-level on the food chain, where there's probably some unit that just, you know, keeps track of these things, probably doesn't do real investigations, or you certainly don't hear about it, but keeps track of it, and, 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 and it doesn't go any further up the, you know, the food chain. So the people, the generals and the chiefs of staff in the White House have this plausible deniability. I mean, you probably heard about this, um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, how they petitioned the White House to say, you know, has the U.S. government, uh, have they have any evidence of contact with extraterrestrials? And one of Obama's science advisors came out and said, no, there's no evidence that we have ever had any contact with extraterrestrials. Well, I believe that petition was worded wrong. What they should have said was, have we had any contact with intelligent life forms other than human beings? Because there's, there's no evidence at all that these have to come from out of space, that they're extraterrestrials. There's a good chance, frankly, that they're time travelers. Are they from another dimension? Are they from inner space or someplace that we don't even know about? Um, so... Um, I, I, like I said, I think that the that wording of that petition was wrong, and I think that that a lot of times people think too much that they are, they must be little green men from Mars, where you know there's no evidence to show that either one way or the other. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I like about the book too is that you know you sort of like stick to adjust the facts scenario here and, and really don't go off on any wild speculation, which I really appreciate because it's sometimes the wild speculation is what trips us up here in UFO research because, like I said, they can get down a whole different path and, and you know, you're building a sandcastles or something like that. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. one of the interesting things that you mentioned in the beginning of the book in the introduction is that, you know, the 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 trend here of UFOs observing conflict is is an interesting one in that you know, they're just observing. They never seem to go any further than that, with some very rare exceptions. I mean, so, you know, I'm going to have to have you speculate here and, and sort of get your thoughts on this. What do you think they're doing if, if, they're, if they're just watching these, these conflicts? Well, I don't know. It's an interesting question because on one hand, you think, well, you know, some of these, you know, UFOs that people have seen, you know, in, in recent years, or all the way back, you know, to World War II and, and even earlier, were described as these fantastic flying machines that could do unbelievable maneuvers and, and could fly very quickly and could basically fly so quickly that it seems like they disappear and just, you know, amazing technology. So you think, well, why would some entity with that kind of technology choose to fly alongside a B-17 bomber 
as it's bombing a city in Germany. Why, 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 if, you, if you have that technology, why do you feel like you have to fly 100 feet off the wing of a bomber in the middle of a bombing run? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, to tell you the truth, you know, what I've kind of started to think about is, is there's a possibility, or, you know, maybe, that these are time travelers, and they're coming back to this time to see history being made. Interesting, interesting. So you give that, I wouldn't say heavy credence, but I'd say you, you give that a, a, a strong it, there's a, there's a possibility. consideration. And, and, and I'll, you know, I'll tell you um, how I came about that, and it's kind of unusual. I'll try to make this a short story. But oh, take as much time as you want. Don't worry. As I'm writing, I always have the TV on in my office with the sound turned down. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I do that, but that's just how I do it. And for some reason, while I was working on this book, I would have the channel... Uh, turn to the Animal Planet channel all the time, or a lot of the time, and things would just I would, things would just I would see catch you know my attention out of the corner of my eye, and one day I just started watching it, and and it was something about you know uh, people going on tourist safaris, and I thought you know what do you do to if you want a safari a tourist safari what would happen well you would fly from the United States. A long way to Africa, they would they they would put you in a truck, and the truck would go out into the Serengeti or something, and you would take pictures and watch as you know lions ate antelopes, and you know alligators ate lions, and you know and, and you would see all this activity, this uh, animal activity, the animals basically going on with their daily lives. They would see the truck, they would see you, but they can't conceive of you know who you are what the truck is about, what a tourist is. So right. they, they just kind of ignore you and go on and, and do their thing. Well, in a way, maybe that's what UFOs are doing. We see them all the time. It isn't, you know, people have this idea that UFOs are trying to hide from the, uh, from us, but they're not. There's something like, I don't know, two or 3,000 UFO sightings a day around the world. Uh, you know, people have been seeing them for, for years, hundreds, even thousands of years. They're not trying to hide uh, they're not trying to make their presence unknown because we see them all the time. It's just that we don't know what they are. So maybe just like the lion can't tell what a safari truck is about, we can't understand, we can't conceive what a UFO is. And then if you take that just one step further, there are some you know people that go out into the jungle or you know out into the plains and and they shoot uh, animals with tranquilizer guns and they study them. Well, you know that's almost like what the abduction thing is about. So, you know, that's kind of all tied into maybe they're just coming back. Maybe they're coming here to watch us, you know, watch history being made, ancient history to them, or something along those lines. I mean, you know, that's as good a theory as they're coming down here to take us over for some reason. So, once again, it's it's the little green men theory. You know, it's one possibility of many. Right, right. I think the whole idea of them coming to take over is, is, I don't know, I don't think it's ever – would been born out in a sense, you know what I mean? Unless they're very patient and they have a long term plan, but it's like what, they should they would have wiped us out like what, right. You know, exactly. what are they waiting ago. for? They certainly wouldn't want us developing like nuclear weapons and all kinds of like ability to at least uh, at least put up a fight. So it seems right. strange that they would they would allow for that. But maybe I mean, as you report in the book, obviously that they've been very interested in the whole nuclear development. So it's like who knows what. Is you know that's the million dollar question is who's what is behind this and what do they want that's you know what drives us all right I thought it was interesting in the book you mentioned uh, and I hadn't heard this story for like years and years and years and that's this whole idea that maybe uh, that UFOs were somehow involved in the plague which I thought was really 
interesting and, and it, it sort of sparked the memory for me of hearing the story like like oh I don't even know almost almost 10 years ago now when I read uh, a book that mentioned a similar sort of theory so uh, I guess talk a little bit about about that whole concept because uh, it, it's kind of underreported uh, in a lot of places well I, you know I, I had never known about this either until I got into the research but uh, basically, the story is is that um, you know the, the plague hit uh, Western Europe around uh, 1340s to 1350 or so, killed millions of people. You know, some people say over 100 million people. And uh, the cause that everyone seems to agree on is that it was caused by bacteria and fleas, and the fleas were carried by rats, and the rats were everywhere. Um, but during the same time when all this was happening, uh, there were reports of of flying objects going through the sky, flying very low and leaving a strange uh, vapor in, in their wake. And it seemed to some people that wherever these objects were seen, wherever this vapor touched down, the plague would, would break out in that area. So that's strange enough, but there are also reports of uh, people seeing these mysterious figures uh, from, you know, origins unknown, let's say, dressed in black hoods and robes and carrying uh, sides and sickles and um, they would see these people uh, killing livestock for some reason, and they were dressed in black. So these people were almost like medieval men in black, as we know uh, they're called these days. But what these people actually turned out to be were the Grim Reapers. That's the origin of the Grim Reapers. So it, it's kind of strange. I had never heard that story until I, I did the research, and, and um, like you, it was like, uh, wow, what is that about? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, uh, I'd read it in one book, uh, William Bramley's Gods of Eden, back in uh, I want to say 2004. So, and then I haven't really seen it anywhere since. So it was like, wow, this this brings up a whole bunch of memories uh, that I hadn't even considered uh, or thought of in a long time. So kudos to you for for digging that one up. Now, I, I, uh, speaking of sort of these odd looking men, I, I noticed that that comes up again during the scare ship wave uh, over Scandinavia because uh, during that whole thing. You know, there were these also these reports of these odd-looking uh, foreign men in the area, sort of checking out, uh, you know, where the scare ships had been seen and stuff. So we're, we're sort of seeing a, a sort of underlying thing going on as well there. Right. Uh, the the first um, um, example of you know, literally the men in black uh, in the modern era was the scare ship. Uh, I don't want to call it a craze, uh, but in 1909 is uh, actually in England where. Uh, the spring of 1909, people started seeing these objects going overhead that, that were kind of shaped like zeppelins, but were uh, moving at more than 200 miles an hour. They would fly against the wind. Uh, they would have huge searchlights uh, underneath them that were illuminated. They were only seen at night. And um, um, people started seeing them all over the place. And there were more than one because people would see them simultaneously in London and up in East Ang in Anglia, part of uh, uh, England, and they were even seen in Northern Ireland, and, and there had been an airship uh, scare in the United States at the uh, just about 15 years before, and these things, they, it turns out they were seen uh, throughout Europe at various times, but in one instance, uh, one of them flew over this uh, gentleman's house. He, he lived on a cliff on the coast of England, and um, the next morning, he saw it, and then the next morning, he went out, and he found this strange, strange object in his on his lawn, and it was uh, he described it as a metal rod uh, that had been shoved through a soccer ball. He had no idea what it was. So uh, he uh, contacted the local Coast Guard, 
and they came up to look at it. The local police came up to look at it. They didn't know what it was about, so they asked him to hold on to it until some of it in the British military could look at it. Uh, in the time in between, uh, the, the military did come and take the object, but right around the same time, this gentleman's house servant was leaving the house one day, and she saw these two guys dressed in black, kind of nosing around where he had found this object. And they went into his barn where he had kept the object, looked around, but when they saw her, uh, they kind of scared her, and she, you know, uh, took off. But she did say that they were dressed in black, they were very odd-looking, and they were and they were speaking a, 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 a an odd language, a foreign language. Yeah. So, you know, who were these people? It seemed like, you know, really kind of a, a, a Men in Black episode before we came to know the Men in Black. Um, just another weird, you know, part of this whole big puzzle. Right, right, absolutely. It's like someone... <laughs> You know, someone came to clean up their mess somehow. Why, you know? <laughs> Something. Yeah. You wonder sometimes we'd be better off, like, getting one of these next time you see a man in black. Just, like, I don't want to suggest violence, folks, but maybe just, you know, hit him with a lamp or something. Yeah, tackle him. Yeah, there you go. Thank yeah. you. So we can get some answers out of these guys. Well, there's been a lot made about, you know, sort of the the changing face of UFOs, if you will, you know, because, like you said, they start, there was this whole airship thing going on, not the scare ship, as we said here, uh, you know, back back in the turn of the 20th century, and it seems like the the like I said, the face of the UFO has changed over time. The cigar shape, little balls of light. Uh, have you noticed any sort of overarching evolution based on all the cases you've looked at, or is it sort of like you just get a little of this, a little of that, and it's always you know all these different shapes show up throughout all the different times? Well, the, the the two most prominent shapes definitely are the saucer shape and the cigar shaped object. And in fact, the cigar shaped object is probably uh, the most uh, the most reported UFO shape of all. Uh, and and the cigar shaped objects have been seen way back in 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 pre in almost biblical times. Yeah. Um, the saucers became um, you know people started seeing flying saucers you know almost immediately after Kenneth Arnold saw. His UFOs in 1947, and the and after because of his encounter, the media coined the term "flying saucers." But um, it, it is kind of funny; they do change. They do change. It's almost like how cars that in the 1950s don't look like cars these days. You know, it's almost like there's different models. You yeah. know, um, the the like the scare ships. What were they? I mean, and then the the uh, the ghost flyers of Scandinavia. They were literally planes. They were huge planes. That flew over Sweden, but no one was ever able to identify what they were. Um, the ghost rockets of 1946, once again over Scandinavia, they looked like one-day cruise missiles. Some of the things that uh, some of the Foo Fighters, a lot of the Foo Fighters were, as you say, kind of large glowing orbs of light. But then others were, you know, looked like um, were the cigar shaped with portholes, and they could see beings inside. So it is kind of strange it is it is kind of a um, you know like a like a, like i say it's like in a way ufo's they change model years like uh like our cars do it's again you know it's just like one of these many pieces of this puzzle that no one can seem to really put together yet yeah exactly yeah and a lot of people speculate that maybe the ufo's change their appearance based on what we would expect them to look like and it does seem like throughout the, you know, all the reports, like in the book and everything, it seems like they're always just sort of a couple generations ahead of us, yes. you know, they're never really like so, 
super, I mean, obviously they're super advanced, but I mean, they're never so like, so uh, like out of reach in a sense. So it makes you wonder what that's all about. Well, you know, the, 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 the ghost flies of uh, 1933 is, it's probably my uh, favorite chapter in the book because, and, and I'll just quickly describe what happened. It was just basically over in 1933, 1934, over this very desolate part of Sweden called Verbauten, which is kind of in northern Sweden, up near the Arctic Circle, people started seeing these strange planes. And in 1933, in this part of the world, planes were, airplanes were still kind of a novelty. You didn't see them hardly ever. So, but all of a sudden, people start seeing these strange planes, and they're, they're huge, and they have eight engines, and they have a odd uh, um, tail tail that looks like a twin boom, which if anyone's familiar with a P-38 Lightning, it has like a twin tail section connected at the end. They had pontoons, and just like the scare ships, they had huge searchlights on the, the bottom of their fuselage that they would shine down at the ground. So these people started seeing these things all over Sweden and then all over Norway and all in, in Finland as well. And they had all these very strange characteristics. They would they would circle around towns for hours on end. They would circle railway stations. They would circle mountains. They would fly in blizzards. They would fly in like terrible weather. They would sometimes shut off their engines and glide in, in while circling something and then turn their engines back on, which is almost impossible. Well, no one ever found out what these things were. No, you know, People thought they might have been German spy planes or, or whatever, but that whole thing has really been kind of disproven because the German military just did not have the, uh, the wherewithal or the uh, scientific or the aeronautical uh, you know, smarts to have an airplane like that, an eight-engine airplane. There are no eight-engine airplanes. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but as you say, it just seems like, well, maybe 15 years after 1933 and 34, you could probably have a plane like that. It just seems like it was a little bit ahead of its time and, and, and just a little out of whack, a little odd. Um, same thing with the ghost rockets of 1946. Same area of Scandinavia, people started seeing these rockets, uh, thousands of them, actually. And, and so much so that the Swedish government secretly asked the British for some air defense radar. And when the British sent the radar, all of a sudden what people were seeing with their eyes was showing up in radar. And and these things lasted for an entire year. And like I say, thousands of people saw these things. And they thought they were once, again, they thought they were German v, leftover German V1 and V2 rockets that the Russians were somehow firing, or for some reason firing over Sweden. But but on a good day, the Nazis could only shoot off 15 V1 rockets. And, and people were seeing dozens of these things. They were seeing them flying in formation and so on. And and the basic description was of a cruise missile. And, and Swedish... Air Force pilots actually saw one that seemed to have terrain guidance capability, which is uh, you you fly along and let's say you have an altitude of 500 feet and you come to a mountain that's a thousand feet high. Well, the the plane's controls automatically lift you up and over the mountain, still keeping that buffer of 500 feet. And it's, it's how you these days have uh, cruise missiles and airplanes that kind of go in on the low attack mode. But anyway, it's a very sophisticated kind of technology. Certainly no one had it in the 40s. We barely had it in the 80s, and they were not used in combat. Uh, it was not used in combat until the 90s. But the Swedish um, defense minister who was interviewed about this in the 80s said from, from all he saw, he says what was happening in 1946 was someone was flying cruise missiles over Sweden, but who had cruise missiles in 1946? It's it's weird. The whole thing is weird. I, it is weird. The 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 book and and uh, you know you, you gave proper kudos to uh, Keith Chester absolutely because the book reminded me a lot of uh, 
his stuff as well. It makes you wonder, too, also just sort of what the story is with Scandinavia. You know, what, why, why were they such a prominent location for two serious uh, UFO flaps? And then really, I mean, I'm sure they have their share of UFO events now, but it's like they aren't really the center of the UFO universe as they, as they were at the turn of the 20th century for two different distinct waves. So it makes you wonder what the what what the appeal, I guess you could say, of, of that area was at the time. Maybe because it was such a peaceful or remote location, I'm not sure. Right. And, and well, there's nothing up there. I mean, let's face it, there's nothing up there in, in northern Sweden. And, um, um, and, and why would you fly... Uh, you know, literally hundreds of these things, uh, you know, over such a, a desolate area, yet many people saw them, yet you you picked up in radar. So so it's not like you're trying to hide what you're doing, but um, there's just no explanation for what you're doing. Right. And, and like you say, why Scandinavia? I mean, there were, there were people who, who, you know, at the time speculated that, you know, there's some other, you know, highly tech, technological race that, like, lives you know, below the south, the North Pole, or something. You know, or lives in the ocean, or something. But, but still, why? You know, why would they be doing these things? You know, it, it's almost like, like it's just weird. It's weird. There's, there's, you, you can sit down and think about it for hours or days, and you'll never come to an explanation because there's never been anyone. As I said, there's never been anyone who's come forward and said, "Hey, you know, I was, I was launching the ghost rockets from." you know, X, Y, and Z back in 1946. No one ever came forward and said, I was one of the ghost flyer pilots in 1933. They just disappear. Right, right, exactly. And that that's similar to the whole, like, Foo Fighter thing. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. you, you'd think that, like, you know, 60 years on or whatever, we'd know what was behind that if it was of some earthly origin just by the sheer nature of how antiquated it is now. Mm-hmm. It, they, well, in, in World War II, um, and as you say, you know, Keith Chester, I... I you know, relied on him uh, for a lot of the uh, main stories that he had in his book. And and what it really was was that, you know, there were British and American pilots, mostly in Europe, but also in the Pacific Theater as well, that would see these Foo Fighters on a, on a really regular basis. And they would come back from these bombing runs and say, you know, this fantastic aircraft, uh, aerial flying machine was, you know, pacing me during the bombing runs and followed us for two or three hours and so on. And the the intelligence officers who debrief these bomber crews after they come back from their missions, they were in this quandary because, you know, the, the, the number one priority of the Allies were to win the war, to bomb Germany into submission. And they just didn't have the time or the resources or the wherewithal to start studying what these strange things were that people were seeing. So the, the blanket explanation for them were they must be German wonder weapons, even though a lot of the things that they did gave no indication they were German, um, but they just said, okay, there must be wonder weapons, and when the war is over, if we win, we're going to find out what these things were. Well, when the war ended, they went in looking for them, and the Germans basically said to us, we thought they were your secret weapons. Yeah. Because they saw them, too. And, and you know, there was no huge, vast underground factories that the Germans were making these these machines that could go 4,000 miles an hour. There was, there was, there was no, you know, huge scientific community working on these things. It was impossible for German, for these things to be German wonder weapons or super weapons because in 1944, the Germans had a, a jet fighter, the only jet fighter really in World War II, the ME-262, but they were so low in resources, the cockpit of their jet fighters were made of wood. 
So where do, you, where do you get the resources and the energy and the money and everything to keep a huge project like this going and secret? And then the, 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 the biggest question is, if these were German super weapons, why, why weren't they shooting down our bombers? Right. There's, there's, no, there's no reports ever of Foo Fighters shooting at our airplanes or shooting at anybody. You know, why aren't they shooting at our troops on the ground? Why does Germany lose the war if they have such great technology? So I know a lot of books have been written that saying that these were Nazi super weapons and so on and so forth. But frankly, I think that's just a way of keeping the whole idea of the Nazis alive. And, and like I said before, and I say in the book, I think, you know, we have better things to concentrate on than keeping the idea of the Nazis alive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and as you said, I mean, they... They just, it doesn't make any sense that they were wonder weapons, because they weren't weapons at all. They were more of a nuisance than anything. And, and, uh, unless they were some really, some really rudimentary type thing that they just could do that, you know, but even that we know about it by now, I think. So right. I think someone would have come, someone would have come forward. I mean, you know, as we know that, that at the end of the law, half of the German rocket scientists went to Russia and the other half came over here. It's, it's because the German rocket scientists that we went to the moon. Werner von Braun was a Nazi scientist. He was the father of uh, the, the uh, NASA's Apollo missions, okay? Somewhere along the line, one of those guys would have said, instead of, you know, having this massive rocket send a little capsule to the moon, we have this technology that you can go 4,000 miles an hour and disappear in the blink of an eye. I, they would have said it. Right. They didn't. So, uh, you know, all the evidence, there is absolutely no evidence that they were Nazi superweapons. Right, right, right. Well, that brings also, though, in, into the whole equation here, the sort of issue that's come up in UFO research, which is sort of like, you know, back in the day, where we're talking about sort of uh, the, the the era that we're talking about now, where, you know, the Scandinavian stuff and the Foo Fighters and everything, it was sort of like we know for sure that we don't have that kind of technology, and the Germans don't either. Um, you know, but but now here in 2011, it's like the, the that line is really blurry, because the government, we don't know exactly what kind of technology the government does have on its hands. And that sort of is what has caused all this controversy and debate over stuff like the black triangles, which a lot of people insist are, are really just black op uh, government, secret government test weapons and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, they, they very well could be. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, people have heard this explanation, but um, uh, one explanation I've heard for those are that they're stealth limps. And their um, their underbellies uh, just coated with uh, microprocessors and millions of little lights. And what they're able to do is they're able to take a picture of the of the stars overhead and project it on the bottom of the blimp uh, perfectly as it moves along. So if one of these things was going over your head and let's say it was a very starry night, you wouldn't see it. That's how they stay invisible, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. So that idea has been out for about maybe 10 years. Um, someone, I was talking to someone today and, and we were talking about top secrets and, and how the government keeps secrets, as you say. And this fighter pilot that I interviewed a, a few years ago said to me, he said, you got to realize something. To keep something top secret costs lots and lots of money. It's very expensive to keep something top secret because, it, you know, just the layer of, upon layer of security and hiding it and, and hiding all the technology and everything. So he says, when you hear of things kind of leaking out, like the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber, you know, the government eventually let everyone know that we had stealth airplanes. Well, the reason they did that is something else took its place. 
something else took its place. Right. So, they, so they move the, you know, it, it moves out of the top, top secret arena only because there's something else in it taking its place. Stealth, stealth blimps, same thing. Today I just read that there's a military, a small unmanned military shuttle that's been up in orbit since March. It's about to break the world record for a number of orbits of an unofficial, you know, of a machine, you know, going around orbiting the Earth. Okay. They have not, it was highly secret, but now they're kind of letting people know about this thing, whatever it does. Well, that's because something else has taken its place. Yeah. So, like you say, it's like, how do you know? How do you know? You, you know, what they're working on now, top secret wise, we might know in five years or ten years or who knows when. Right, exactly, exactly. Then it goes back to the, you know, the argument about where this technology came from and the whole idea of, of you know, crashed saucers and stuff. I thought it was interesting in the book that you, you know, you say that Roswell was probably not uh, an extraterrestrial event. So I thought that was an interesting sort of a stance to take, considering what you've looked into and all the research you've done. So, I mean, what makes you come to that conclusion? Well, um, it's a, a couple things. Like I said, when I was a kid growing up, I used to read every UFO book I could get my hands on. <laughs> and I did not see anything about Roswell in any of those books. Roswell was something that came and went back in 1947, and then was it was revived at the end of the 70s or the early 80s, and then really kind of took off. Um, I've just seen pictures. The pictures of the debris that, uh, that, that came along with the famous press release. It, if you see those pictures and then you see what one of the um, uh, uh, sky balloons uh, that they used to – I mean, what, what the government said it, what it was was that it was a, it was a balloon with a, with a kite tail that they used to launch from that area to fly over to uh, across Russia and the Soviet Union to eavesdrop on whether the Russians were uh, testing nuclear weapons or not. They wanted to keep that secret. If you see what these sky balloons, these secret balloons, look like before they've been launched, and you look at the debris that came along with the photo of the famous press release, you can match them up. They match up perfectly. That debris is from the tail of one of these spy balloons, and that's what they found. And and there was a military cover-up, but it wasn't cover-up a crash uh, flying saucer. It was to cover up this spy balloon uh, program that they didn't want the Russians to know we were doing. And now it is just you know has gone down one of these crazy paths, in my opinion, because now there you know there are stories that there were twelve saucers that crashed, and that there were you know dozens of alien bodies, and people saw the bodies, and so on and so forth. And it's just you know become this huge, huge story with just way too many moving parts for it to be true. And and once again, where is the one person who can come out and say, here's the photo, here's the film? You know, they, they had, someone would come forward by this time and say, this is what happened, but no one ever does. So, you know, am I saying that there, there has never been flying saucers, crash flying saucers recovered, you know, anywhere around the world? No. But I just don't think one of them happened at Roswell. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. I'd say, you know, that's, I, I'd say you're in the minority opinion on that one in the UFO field, I guess you could say, but, but not without your reasons. So, you know, I, I don't debate on the show. <laughs> so I find your, your take on it, uh, just as valid as the rest. So you do raise an interesting sort of point that by now you, you'd think that, 
it would have gotten out somehow. So you wonder why it hasn't, and, and maybe, you know, maybe... Well, part of the problem with Roswell, too, is, like, a lot of ufologies sort of pin a lot of their hopes to it. So they can't let it go, in a sense. Right. I mean, I would love for it to be true. When it Back in the, um, I guess it was in the late 80s and in, in the 90s, there were, at, at one point, they were asking for volunteers to go down and do an archaeological dig right on the site. Okay, and I volunteered. I was living in New York at the time, but I was ready to get out to New Mexico and, and join this, uh, you know, archaeological dig because I thought, wow, that would be, now there you are, there's, a, there's an instance where you're going to go through a scientific method to actually try to prove or disprove the existence of a flying saucer. Yeah. And that's really what you have to do. You can't leave it up to the military. Scientific people have to look into this thing. And, and this, this thing never happened, and, and I don't know what happened to it, but all of a sudden they weren't calling for volunteers anymore. I think it would have been great if, if you know, they something did happen down there. But um, I, I just don't believe it did. Now, now just to go a little bit further into the book, what what is interesting is that years later, when the uh, U.S. W- was installing ICBM missiles in missile silos all over the middle middle part of our country, they had a number of uh, UFO incursions over these missile sites where they would hover over the site and, and kill all the all the uh, electricity in the site. Sometimes they found that they were changing the targeting systems on these things. The whole idea of this, the whole chapter on the IC, UFO ICBM you know, incursions is really kind of a scary thing. And and one of those uh, silos that had a lot of visits from UFOs, turns out, is in Roswell, New Mexico. So, you know, that further complicates the whole Roswell thing. Um, you know, like I said, years later, there was literally a silo very close to where Roswell happened that was, quote-unquote, haunted by UFOs. Right, right, right. Well, it wasn't also the uh, the the squadron or whatever that was stationed at Roswell when the Roswell crash allegedly happened. They were like the only ones that had nuclear weapons or something, right? Right. right. So and see, that fits into back. you know the people who believe something happened down there. I, I don't blame them for bringing that up as a good piece of evidence that you know because it does seem like UFOs back then were very interested in you know not only us you know going to war, being at war, preparing for war. They were very interested in anything having to do with nuclear weapons. In fact, another chapter in the book is about the USS uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was an aircraft carrier built after World War II. It was the first aircraft carrier that jet aircraft landed on, and it was also the first Navy aircraft carrier to carry nuclear weapons. And for this this ship's entire you know career, which was spanned 40 years, there was at least six incidents where UFOs showed up over it, dogged it, followed it, haunted it, whatever you want to call it. For some reason, UFOs were always around this aircraft carrier. You know why? Is it because it was the first aircraft carrier to have nuclear weapons on it? Who knows? You know. But once again, just another piece of the puzzle that we can't seem to put together. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you wonder why these UFOs have an interest in nuclear weapons, because it's clear they do. They have some interest in the nuclear aspect of things. So it, Yes, clearly they do. Right. No idea why, though. That's the maddening part. You just, you know, in a way, I've grown to sort of dislike the aliens or whoever's behind the UFOs. I'm sort of just like frustrated with them <laughs> uh-huh. in general. But it, 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 that kind of brings up a whole another thing here because, like in the book, you talk about the Battle of L.A. and it's like you hear people all the time and they're like, "Well, why don't they land on the White House lawn?" But it's like that that Battle of L.A. event is is, is like practically the equivalent in a sense. I mean, uh-huh. you had half a million witnesses or something like that. Uh-huh. And and it was just like front page news, and and then 
it just never nothing became of it. And it's, that's the, another frustrating sort of part where it's like, how bold of a UFO sighting do you need if, if the Battle of L.A. Isn't, doesn't suffice? Right. But, you know, here's an interesting thing, and, and, and is that they were, because it happened while we were at war, and it happened at a time in World War II where, where um, Pearl Harbor had only happened, you know, less than three months before. Right. And the, people had real, uh, you know, concerns that the Japanese were going to physically invade the west coast of the United States. The day before the UFOs showed up over L.A., a, a Japanese submarine surfaced and in, in shot at an oil refinery about 90 miles up the coast. Uh, they were always having reports that, you know, that, that, that L.A., because L.A. not only was it a large city, but it also had a lot of defense plants in it and therefore had a lot of anti-aircraft guns around it and a lot of civil defense people uh, involved. Um, they were always getting reports that, hey, tonight, you know, there might be a bombing, there might be an air raid tonight. And and on this that particular night, that's the word they got. And sure enough, all these objects start showing up over L.A. And, and the anti-aircraft fire opened up on them. And, you know, they had this battle for about two hours. And as I'm sure everyone knows, you know, a lot of the ordinance came down, killed six people on the ground, did lots of damage. And then there's that famous photo, which is in the book that the L.A. Times let us, gave us permission to run, where it's 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 a it's a huge saucer caught in six or seven searchlights and being shot at but i think the interesting thing is is that because that it happened if that happened today our world would change forever but because it happened during wartime and because everyone just as everyone thought hey the food fighters over europe must be german secret weapons everyone just said this had to be the japanese somehow some way this had to be the japanese but at the end of the war they pointedly asked them you know did you have anything to do with what happened over la that night uh, february 25th in 1942 and they said no way we they didn't have the technology to fly anything that far over to the united states in fact they didn't have aircraft carriers that that could go that far once once again they did not have the technology to do what happened over la so you know what was it and, and, and I also think that because Steven Spielberg made a really bad movie about it uh, years later called 1942, if anything, people will think on that as, as kind of like a goof, a comedy. That movie was like Animal House and Airplanes. And and so no one has ever taken it seriously. The the U.S. government has never investigated that. Um, they just the, the Navy covered it up immediately. The Army said that something happened over L.A., but then they kind of, you know, shut down all information. And, and once again, we were at war. We were just newly at war, and there are other things we had to take care of instead of trying to find, figure out what happened. But so the result is no one ever figured out what happened. Right, right, exactly. And then just to extend sort of the, the motif in a way, talking about this whole White House lawn scenario, then you get the D.C. flyovers, which is like – you know, how do we know the how do we know the UFO wasn't trying to land on the White House lawn? And as it's getting closer, they scramble jets and chase it off. It's like it's like you can't they can't land on the White House lawn if we don't let them. Right. Well, you know, I mean that's that's one of the most fascinating stories ever. I mean, once again, imagine if that had happened. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know it, but but basically for two weekends in in uh, the summer of 1950, um, UFOs showed up uh, over Washington D.C. They were, they were photographed going past the Capitol building. They were over the White House or heading towards the White House. Many people saw them. Many, many pilots saw them. Airline pilots saw them. People on the ground. People in control towers. And, and as you say, when they scrambled the jets, as soon as the jets would, would arrive, the UFOs would take off. 
when the jets would, you know, go back to the base, the UFOs would come back. It, it was just this amazing story. It got to the point where they had, they, President Truman uh, issued this secret order, which very quickly was leaked uh, to all U.S. military pilots, that if you encounter a UFO and you can't, quote-unquote, talk him down, then shoot him down. And, and when that happened, people started calling the White House and the Pentagon saying, don't shoot at these things because, you know, they'll burn us to a crisp. Um, and, and just to extend the story a little bit further, um, what, what really happened was that so many people, when that happened, so many people called the White House and so many people called the Pentagon that they, they physically jammed up all the telephone lines. So you couldn't make a call out of the White House or in. You couldn't make a call in or out of the Pentagon. And when that happened, and this is just normal citizens calling about UFOs and don't shoot at them and what happened and so on. And, and what happened then was the CIA was then brought into the whole UFO equation. And they said, listen, well, this is their public stance was, we don't know what they are, but you cannot have a situation where the Russians could somehow, uh, you know, do a fake UFO attack on Washington, jam up all our co uh, communications lines, because that would be devastating to us if they uh, paralleled that with some kind of an attack. So that's when the CIA got in the business of discrediting anyone who says that they've seen a flying saucer. That's really where this whole kind of government, you know, see me kind of in the shadow government cover-up began. The rubber hit the road there, I think, right. and they were like, "We got to do something about this." Right? You know, we don't. We're not going to figure out what they are, but we got to do something about what the physical aspects of this are. But, like I say in the book, can you imagine something like that happening in the post nine eleven world? You know, dozens of UFOs suddenly showing up over the White House and the Capitol building, in Washington. I mean, it would be a, a, a civilization would not be the same after something like that happened. And um, uh, it's just unusual that it happened back in the fifties and. Uh, and, and people know about it, but, you know, once again, it's just such a mystery. You can only go so far in, in, in investigating where you just throw up your arms and say, we can't figure out what happened. Right, right, exactly. A lot of this stuff, like the Roswell case, like the 52 DC flyover and stuff, I mean, these we're talking stuff that's like multiple decades old at this point, and it gets increasingly difficult to really investigate this stuff. Even the stuff like from Batwaters is really hard to investigate, and that's only like 30 years old. Right, right. You know, that's a great case, because everyone knows about that, but I, I actually saw a TV show about that today, and that's a really baffling case, because, you know, uh, once again, you the, the military, especially the, the office, the core of the military, no matter what happens, they always dummy up when it comes to this. But now you had that, uh, you know, I think the guy was a major who was out in the woods, he's seeing this stuff, and he's recording it on his tape recorder. It's really a compelling story, what those guys saw, and how it affected their lives, afterwards, too, is really interesting. But, you know, once again, at the end of the day, you say, well, what was it? No one knows. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's mad. Like I said, the book is, is, is really is jam-packed with stuff. And at the end of the day, it's, it's maddening in the sense just that it's been so long and there's so many good cases out there that really haven't this thing hasn't broken through at all. It's, it's frustrating in a lot of ways uh, as, as a, someone who wants to know the answer. You know, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would love for it to be solved in our lifetimes, you know, but will it? You know, I don't know. I asked, at the end of the book, I asked uh, five UFO researchers, when do you think it will be solved? And uh, Jerry Clark was the one who, he had the most optimistic answer, and, and 
he said, and I know he said this many times before. He said when the when the scientific community actually gets serious about it, and they actually start investigating it through scientific methods, um, and and funded to do something like this. Eventually, they will find out what it is, he thinks, okay? But he doesn't believe that will happen uh, for another 40 or 50 years or so. I hope he's wrong on his timeline, but I agree with him. It, it's, it's not a job for the military. It's certainly not a job for the politicians. It's a job for scientists. I mean, they spend $10 billion to do the, uh, the, the Big Bang Collider over in Europe, $10 billion. Can you imagine what $10 billion would do if someone, you know, uh, put it to the scientific research of what UFOs are. Exactly. Think yeah. of what we would learn, and what we would learn is would would change civilization forever. Right, right. Well, it goes back to the whole idea that like they don't want to upset the apple cart in a sense. That almost makes you wonder if, like I was saying, you know, they can't land on the White House lawn if we don't let them. Well, maybe that was <laughs> maybe that was the problem. Maybe we wouldn't let them. Maybe we were like maybe the government was like, hey, get the hell out of here. We don't, you know. We don't want to join your galactic community. We got a pretty good thing going here right now, where we rule these people in, in this in these fiefdoms, and, and you right. know. So it's it's when it's all said and done, I think we'll we'll have obviously we'll have a better understanding of it all. But I think uh, you know, right now there's so many whys. There's just as many hows uh, and and whys. Uh-huh. It's very strange. The whole phenomenon is 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 is, is flummoxing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Who are you calling? The press. This is big news. Sound barrier's finally been broken. No, sir. No press. What? No word of this is to go beyond the flight line. What's going on here? This is big news. We need coverage of this. No, sir. Sorry. No press. Those are orders. National security. But the war's over. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Well, look, pal. Maybe they don't want someone to know. Who? The Russians, maybe. The Russians, they're our allies. Well, anyway, someone figured it out that way, and that's the way it is. Continuing on the sort of uh, theme of these, like, mystery visitors, uh, that that the 415 uh, Squadron, which was sort of like the the origins of the Foo Fighter name and one of the big Foo Fighter uh, groups that saw the most Foo Fighter sightings. I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, they had sort of like these two civilian visitors that, questioned them and said they were going to do a whole report and then never uh, never developed anything. So it's like right. another continuing uh, scenario here of like these mystery investigators. Well, you know, it, it, that the whole 415 thing is was really interesting because it, basically what they were, they were they were a night fighting squadron. They came along towards the end of the war. Uh, they were based in Dijon, France, and they flew these British-built uh, bow fighters, which are, they're, they're like a large fighter or a small bomber, okay, and and they were very fast, and they could carry a lot. So they what they used to do is they would stick radar in their nose, and then they would link it up with radar on the ground, and they would go out and they would fly at night, and they would shoot up all these German targets at night. Very dangerous thing to do. And the people who flew these airplanes were the cream of the crop of American military pilots in Europe at the time. So for whatever reason... 415 was, they saw, you know, pound for pound, more Foo Fighters than any other American or British squadron during World War II. For whatever reason, every time they went up just about, they would encounter these Foo Fighters. 
So, and, and as it turned out, they were the people who coined the term Foo Fighters because up until that point, people used to call them unguided rockets and, you know, enemy uh, weapons and, you know, balloons and everything. But there was um, a, um, a comic strip back then called Smokey Stova. And he was a firefighter, and his fire truck was called the Fumobile, F-O-O. And just one day, the 415 would gather around, and they said, let's call these things Foo Fighters. And for some reason, that name stuck. And it was just interesting that the people who named Foo Fighters were from the squadron that saw the most Foo Fighters. So anyway, they would, they were encountering these things all the time. And then one day... These people show up at their base, and, and they're from Washington. They're direct from Washington. They don't even talk to the commander of the base. They go and they talk to the intelligence officer. They go up on a few flights. It's never been reported whether they actually encountered Foo Fighters during these flights, but they were at their base for less than 48 hours, basically got in their own plane and flew away back directly back to Washington. Who these people were, what their report said, who read the report? No one ever knew. I know Keith Chester dug really deep trying to find out exactly where's the paper trail for these guys. Well, it, there is no paper trail. So whoever they were, and as I say, whoever they reported to and what their conclusions were, we don't know. But all we know is that this it looks like another case of, you know, government men in black coming and looking at this thing, not saying anything to anybody about it, just, you know, taking notes and going back and reporting to somebody. Right, right. Well, tell the story about the... Uh the UFOs and the hit squad from Vietnam, because I thought that was really interesting. And the interrogation uh, of the guys in the hit squad is so bizarre mm -hmm. that I was like, I've never heard the story before. And, 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 and I was just completely blown away by that. And it sort of continues here with this theme we're talking about, which is like really unorthodox <laughs> questioning methods. Right. Well, um, the whole thing about Vietnam itself, Vietnam was just such a crazy war. Okay, and I'm sure a lot of people know that, you know, the way they fought the Vietnam War was that there was no front lines. It wasn't a conventional war. Basically, what it was was a was a, a war where a helicopter war where we would put hundreds, thousands of troops, you know, on helicopters, land in enemy territory, and then just try to kill more of the enemy than they killed of us. And and you know, and and the the, the idea being that the winner would be we will just outlast you, and you and they couldn't outlast the Vietnamese, frankly. But in this one case, what happened was there was a lot of black operations during the Vietnam War. And there was, I, I, what I should say too is there was a lot of drug use through the, uh, in the Vietnam War. So it, whether there's any connection or not, but a lot of the stories that I saw from the Vietnam War are really, really out there and crazy. Um, but this one, basically what it is is, is, is that, uh, this, uh, special ops group went into North Vietnam and what they used to do is they would go on these, um, assassination missions and go to North Vietnam, find some uh, some high communist official, uh, assassinate him, and then they would you know get pulled out by a helicopter. So this hit team was in North Vietnam and they you know got their target and so on, and they were coming back and they uh, and, and the Vietnamese were on their tail. And there was this kind of running gun fight until they finally were able to. Uh, they found these two hills, and the and the Americans hit at the top of one hill, and the and the communists were looking for them on the other hill. In the middle of all this, when it really looked good, uh, really looked bad for the Americans, uh, a UFO shows up, and the communists start shooting at it. Whether they thought it was 
retrieving helicopter or what, but the uh, Columbia started shooting at it, and some kind of a beam came out of the uh, flying saucer. Um, all gunfire from the communist side stopped. The U.S. special ops guys let a little time go by, and then they come down the hill. They're hiding on go up the hill where all the communists were shooting at this thing, and they just found they, they practically nothing left of these uh, Nazi soldiers. So uh, the uh, special ops team's helicopter finally arrives. They go back to their base, and um, and then they were questioned. And 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 what happened was there was I think. Four of, I think five or six people in the team. Uh, the person telling the story said that, you know, uh, he was questioned in a room with civilian and military people. One of them uh, kept his face uh, kind of hidden. And then the next, this guy says the next thing he knows, he's suddenly back at his base. He can't remember, you know, what has happened, how he got from one point to the other. The people who were on his team didn't seem to know what had happened at all. They seem to have complete amnesia. He remembers at least being interrogated. He, once again, he didn't uh, say anything to anybody uh, afterwards. He figured that was the smartest thing to do. Uh, he finally uh, gets out of the uh, service. He, I think, moved to Alaska, where he became a fisherman. And one day, he's on his boat with his wife, and the same exact UFO showed up over his boat, stayed there for a little while, and then left. And for some reason, this guy, I can imagine him, maybe for him that was some kind of closure, I don't know, but it was a very strange way to end this particular UFO story, and just a very odd, odd story from beginning to end. Yeah, yeah, it is very strange. Now, it suggests that maybe the UFO did something to those Vietnamese soldiers. What's the, obviously it sounds fairly rare that, you know, an encounter with the UFO by any of these folks in the military on either side really resulted in any any death or destruction or anything like that for them. But how, how prevalent would you say that sort of thing came up uh, in your research? Well, you know, not at all. But, but, but what's interesting is I kept coming upon this story. I mean, there's, there's a lot of – it was a question of getting together you know, a bunch of stories and then distilling them down and deciding what's going to be in and what's not going to be in. But I kept coming upon this story of – saying that uh, that during the first Gulf War in 1991, that the Air Force shot down a UFO over Saudi Arabia. And this story just kept on popping up, and, and, and I'd seen it so many times, I said, I, I, I have to put this in. So basically what the story is, that there's four F-16s heading to Baghdad on a, on a bombing mission, and a UFO shows up on their radar, and one of them pursues it, and the UFO, as the story goes, fired at it, and... So the F-16 fired back, uh, hit it. Um, there was an explosion in the in the flying saucer, crashes into the Saudi Arabian desert. Now, uh, some people get there before the U.S. military gets there, and they see uh, this crashed saucer and uh, pieces of it, and they can see inside, and it looks like there's seats for you know people, short, uh, diminutive beings, or whatever, and. Um, um, and then the military shows up, clears everyone out, and supposedly, once again, as the story goes, pack up the pieces of the uh, flying saucer and supposedly ship it back to the United States. Now, what's interesting about that is that later on, after the first Gulf War was over, in between the two Gulf Wars, let's say, there was kind of this undeclared war of attrition uh, between the United States and Iraq because there was a no-fly zone over Iraq, and U.S. planes used to, on a weekly basis, you know, blow up one of Saddam Hussein's anti-aircraft 
batteries or whatever. So it was this kind of unknown little war going on that really didn't get into the newspapers very much. Mm-hmm. But during this, once again, as the story goes, it was said that, that Saddam Hussein's anti-aircraft people also shot down a UFO and recovered it and brought it to Iraq's version of Area 51. And that Saddam's people, engineers or scientists, were able to reverse engineer some of the stuff in it and create weapons um, of who knows what kind of uh, power. And once again, this is just how the story goes, and that's what the U.S. was looking for when they went in on the second war, the invasion of Iraq, because they, they knew they didn't find any nuclear weapons, they didn't find any biological weapons or poison gas or anything along those lines. Right. And and we pretty much knew that Saddam didn't have any of those weapons programs because the UN was in was in there for five or six years ahead of that time looking for the stuff. They never found it. So what did they have? Well, if you want to believe the story, um, a lot of it comes out of uh, from Russian sources. Actually, this is the WMD that the U.S. was looking for. Now, if that's true, that's also a mind blowing story. Will we ever find out? Who knows? You know. But like I say, it, it was just such a good story. I could not leave it out. So it's 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 basically at the very end of the book. Right, right. It's very bizarre, and you didn't mention the part either that the rumor was that like the the aliens lived and Saddam kept them uh, safe from the Americans and and that kind of stuff. So it, it's it's a double edged sword in a sense because it's like if the story's true, obviously then the government would never tell us what you know, why they went there and what they found and all that stuff. That's why there's this whole debate about the weapons of mass destruction. But then I've thought lately with the whole idea that, you know, that the uh, the UFOs show up when there's nuclear stuff going on and Iran's trying to develop a nuclear weapon, North Korea's working on it and stuff. It's like if you were a sinister country and you really wanted to upset the apple cart of the world, like, wouldn't you just spill the beans on the UFO phenomenon and, and really mess up everybody's lives, like, around the planet? Like, if Saddam if, – if if I was Saddam Hussein and the invasion was imminent, unless he was, like, so insane that he was sure he was going to win the war, like, I would just trot out the aliens, man, right. and be like, all right, dude, you want to come and attack me? Here's an alien. Right. You know? Now you've got bigger problems than uh, than what I'm doing here. So you wonder then – that adds a whole another like, layer to the mystery. It's like uh-huh. – there should be some country out there that knows that that would want to mess everything up for everybody. So who knows? use it to their advantage, right? Exactly. You know, I mean, North Korea would be a perfect example. Absolutely. If the North Koreans had a crashed UFO, we would know about it. You know, because they would have trotted it out by now. You know, um, again, it's I, I keep looking at it as, you know, you have a big puzzle. You know, one of those huge jigsaw puzzles with four thousand pieces. We got about a thousand pieces in place. But there's a lot of empty spaces, you know, and each little piece, you know, just can't fit anywhere. And and I think that that I do think that we do get more and more evidence here and there of putting this whole big kind of puzzle together. But I I, I still think we're way way off of of finding out the answer. Right, right. I think that there's some like you're saying. Yeah, I think there's I think there's something missing that we haven't quite figured out yet and once that piece falls into place then the rest of this will all sort of come together we hope right i mean <laughs> we hope yeah yeah you know you share the amazing story of the disappearing jet and that's uh on page 185 of the book for folks who've picked it up fantastic story and it does seem like uh and you also mentioned another story in the book where some guys 
some troops like fired on a UFO and it, and it sort of emitted, uh, you know, changed colors and stuff and everybody got pretty sick and stuff. It seems like if anything, any sort of death or injury or anything like that with regards to the UFOs is incidental. It's almost like accidental or, or they got too close or they, or they shouldn't have fired on it and the UFO just did something, you know, incidentally and the next thing you know you're dead or whatever just because you, you can't handle the radiation or something like that. That seems right. to be the only type time when it, when it resulted in, uh, in, in bad things. Right. That, I mean, that story came from an, another UFO researcher I talked to was Dr. Richard Haynes, who is an interesting guy. He was um, worked for NASA for a long time, and he was really instrumental in designing the Gemini capsules and the whole Gemini program in the 60s. And then he um, retired, and, and, and this is a very learned person, and he really directed his energies to looking at the UFOs. And he wrote a book, Aerial Objects, reported over Korea, which is the definitive book, just like Keith Chester's book is the definitive book of Foo Fighters, this book is the definitive book of UFOs over Korea. Mm -hmm. And um, it, there's, there's a good case to be made that after the Air Force shut down the, uh, all, uh, the, the uh, Project uh, Grudge in the late 40s, early 50s, and said we're out of the business of investigating UFOs, well, there's so many UFO reports by military pilots over Korea that it forced the Air Force to reopen their investigation of UFOs, and that's how Project Blue Book came about. But this one incident you're talking about was uh, in the spring of 51. Uh, U.S. troops are right. They're in North Korea at this point, and uh, they're, they're battling for this village, and, and this UFO shows up, and... Uh, the North Koreans start shooting at it, but the uh, the artillery is just basically bouncing off of this thing. But then it came over to where the American troops were dug in, and the American troops fired on it, and they could hear the uh, they could hear the, the bullets pinging off of this thing. Uh, it's it, it, all of a sudden it changes color, it starts vibrating, it sweeps them with a ray, and then um, and makes a tremendous noise. They said it sounded like a bunch of diesel locomotives all starting their engines at once, and then it, it, it leaves the area at high speed. Now, the people who were touched by the ray uh, became sick, and so many of them got sick that they had to actually dig a road in to get all these people out in ambulances. Uh, once again, uh, it was, it was kind of covered up. Um, they told people don't talk about it, and as I said before, you know, the American soldiers, when they're told don't talk about it ever again, a lot of them just don't talk about it ever again. But uh, later on, um, what what Dr. Haynes uh, actually um, realized what this was, was he called it a close encounter of the fifth kind, and that's when you, uh, you're in contact with the UFO, you do something as kind of a communication, whether it's waving your hand or actually shooting at something, and the UFO responds to it. And what he found out, which was fascinating, was years later, almost the exact same thing happened with some hunters somewhere in the United States where a UFO showed up, they started shooting at it, it changed color, started vibrating, and, and swept them with, with a ray. So here you are, it's communication, it's not the kind of communication we want, but it's communication, so you have this UFO acting almost in the exact same manner uh, 20, 30 years later. Really fascinating story. And, and you know, with all the people that, who I talked to and uh, researching the book, and that would be Keith Chester and Jerry Clark and, and, and Dr. Richard Haynes particularly, my idea, and I say it a few times, is that I'm just kind of touching the surface of these episodes. If you really want to 
get into the research. Go out and buy the books. I, I, there's a list of books at the back of the book, at the back of my book. Go out and buy these books and, and see the work these people have done. They've devoted their lives to UFO research, um, and you'll you'll be fascinated at some of the stories. We couldn't put all the stories in this book. You'd be fascinated at some of the stuff that these guys came up with. Oh, absolutely. This, uh, they're great authors, and their books are jam-packed with stuff. And it's like you pick some of the very best of the best, uh, not only to study, but also to highlight in UFOs in wartime. So, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a fantastic book for folks who, especially, you know, if you got somebody in your family who's like, why do you waste your time with that nonsense for? It's like, you know, give them this book, and that will change their mind right away. So it's, uh, it's fantastic in that regard. Uh, one thing I noticed, too, in the book, that I thought was interesting was uh, we're going to go back to the DC flyover here, and that's that, uh, and I think it's reported in other cases as well uh, in the book, but this one stood out to me, and that was, uh, and I may butcher the the story here, but the point is that these two pilots were up chasing after the UFO. Uh, one pilot saw nothing, and the other one saw the UFO. I thought that was really interesting and strange because it brings back this whole idea too of like you know that much of the UFO phenomenon is somehow dependent upon the observer in some way. Uh-huh. And that maybe we're looking in the wrong direction at times because we're not looking closely enough at the actual witnesses and, and what was going on with them at the time. So, I mean, but, but but what I want to know really, I guess, is what you make of it. You know, what, what, what do you think that's all about? That one pilot would see nothing and the other would actually see the UFO. I mean, you know, what what does that mean? You know, it's, it's, it's reported more than once. You're right. I mean, that, that type of thing has come up a lot where people seem to be in the same area looking at the same sky or whatever. Some people see UFOs, some people don't. You know, that really is, is really a, a deep, deep mystery. I know that there are, there are physics experiments where, um, where they, where they shoot protons at, at a target. And if you, um, and, and if you are watching the experiment take place, the pattern that the protons make on the target is different than if you do it in an enclosed area where no one's watching. Okay, very strange kind of uh, Einstein type of experiment, but but it, but you know it's almost like the same thing. It's like you know some people see them, some people don't. Why? Why would that be? What what makes me different from you, or you from someone who has seen UFOs? several times in their lives. I've never seen one. I, I want to see one. Have you ever seen one? No, I've never seen one. Uh, but you want to, I'm assuming, right? I wouldn't pass the chance up. Right. But do you, <laughs> do you think that maybe because we've thought so much about them that we'll never see them? I mean, that also, uh, that's a thought I've had before, too, is that I've thought so much about them that there's no way I'm ever going to see one. It seems to be people who just happen to see them. Right, right. It seems like the people who do see them are the are the people who, a lot of times, are people who don't believe at all, mm-hmm. which is part of it. And then you also, then you get people who see them and it changes their lives, and they become UFO researchers themselves. So yeah, like, like uh, Springfield is a, is a famous example of that, where he was on an airplane at the right at the very end of the war, landed Stringfield, and and uh, saw three uh, UFOs show up off the. Uh, off the right-hand side of the aircraft, and all of a sudden the aircraft starts to lose power, and it's about to crash, and then the UFOs leave, and the engines miraculously come back on, and they land safely. That stra- that changed his life. He, he he became a UFO researcher because of that. Um, I think Dr. Alan Hynek is the same way. He was hired by the Air Force basically to debunk these things, and he saw so much evidence to the contrary, he became one of the most famous UFO researchers ever. 
Um, so, as you say, sometimes people see them and it's a life-changing experience. I can tell you that my wife, she saw one. She was driving along the New York Thruway, and this thing came right down and, and followed her. She was driving very late at night coming home from work, and this thing followed her for quite a while. I mean, she, she pulled over. It stopped. She started driving again. It started moving again. She'd never really thought about UFOs and, until something like that happened, and now... Because she saw one, she believes in it. And, and, and same the story I told earlier about my older brother. There's no way he believed in UFOs until he had his own experience, and, and, and now he does. But who picks and chooses who sees them, you know? They do. That's the strange part. Well, that, that is the strange it's part. It's whoever's behind the UFO decide who, <laughs> whether you can see it or not. Well, it does seem like there's a, a, a situation almost where they – as crazy as it like seems, no matter how high up in the air they are, I mean, I've heard stories about people who they'll see the UFO and it's like the UFO reacts to their seeing it, uh-huh. which is like unbelievable in a sense. Because like if you're down on the ground, you look up and you see a jet flying overhead, like no one on the jet has any idea you're looking at it. Right. But it seems like the UFOs have an idea that someone's looking at it, even if they're as far away as someone looking at a jet in the air. Right. Which, you know, just completely boggles the mind as to how they would be able to do that. Right, right. It's like your own personal UFO or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all, it's, it's really, it just, it just brings this whole thing into a whole other realm of, of mystery. And, 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 you know, it, it, it sort of driven the point home too in the book, uh, you know, your book, obviously, UFOs in wartime, that a lot of the stuff that you're talking about in the book is like, uh, from, you know, the turn of the 20th century and World War II and Vietnam and stuff, and even back to Vietnam and stuff, it's like, it almost, to, to look at, like, the UFO research community and, and, and the field of ufology, it's like, those were such more quaint times, because now in ufology, it's just, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, it's just a minefield of misdirection and confusion and inside sources and conflicting uh, stories about what this is all about. It's like, Somewhere along the way, the study of UFOs became completely muddled, and it, it no longer was as simple as it was back in the day. Right. It, it quaint is, you know, it's, it's a funny word, but you're, you're absolutely right, especially in the 50s, where there were so many UFO incidents, uh, especially around air bases in the United States, where, you know, many people saw them, jets pursued them. You know, Project Blue Book, even though it wasn't really aggressive, it did do some, you know, fairly good investigating in some cases, you know, and, and, and it basically just added more to the mystery. But it was, you know, basically UFOs, what are they? We're going to try to study them. We're going to investigate them. But now with, with, I think with the proliferation of just media in general, you have so many different stories going off in so many different directions. It's hard to kind of get a grip on it. We, we intentionally concentrated on the 20th century. Uh, you know, the book begins uh, really, you know, with uh, just before World War One, and it ends with uh, the end uh, with the end of the first Gulf War. Uh, it seems like the 20th century, you know, it, it remained quaint, let's say, until 70s or 80s, and that's when it really kind of got a little crazy. But I, I agree with you; it's it's more muddled now than ever before. And and if there was only some way to cut through the fog of that. To really get down to it, and, and as I said before, I think it's you have you need a concentrated scientific investigation into it. But you know who's going to pay for that these days? Right, exactly. It's it's it, it's difficult. You'd have a hard time winning over the scientific community to even go there. Right. You know, it's not like we're just talking about something that you know, like a NASA type situation where they're already horribly underfunded and everything. But it's like people will still 
people aren't ashamed to say to say they're interested in NASA and what NASA's doing. It's like you you really have a huge psychological stumbling block to get over just to get people to to get on board a UFO study. Right. And I think the sad thing too is, and and it is sad is, I, there's a good chance that it won't be Americans who solve this. Um, you know, there's a good chance it will be Chinese. Uh, scientists or Indian scientists, um, you know, just to show you the difference of how, what direction we're going in and what direction they're going in. Um, uh, someone from England said they want to add another runway to Heathrow Airport in England, um, and it's taken them five years and lawsuits and so on and so forth just to build this one runway. Meanwhile, in China, they're constructing 75 airports. Wow. Okay, and they got no problems, I'm sure, with lawsuits and so on and so forth. They they're on the trajectory, um, you know, that's that's going up. They 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 have uh, the Chinese, you know, just uh, did a docking in orbit. They're going to put a space station up in orbit soon. They're going to go to the moon. You know, they're the people. It will probably be solved not by some American scientific group, but I guess sad to say by Chinese or or, or India. It's sad because we had our opportunity. We had our opportunity to do this in the late 40s and the 50s, and we didn't do it. And uh, so it's an opportunity lost, in my opinion. Right, right. And if it's not one of these foreign governments, I'm of the opinion that, you know, there's a good chance this whole realm of private space flight is going to end up leading to this whole thing being un unlocked, if you will. Could be. You know, that sort of uh, American ingenuity or, or even, you know, Richard Branson. I mean, someone's going to end up going up there and if, if they keep flying up into space on a regular basis, then eventually I think it's just going to have to come out because right. they can't cover it up or they won't want to cover it up because if you're like Richard Branson and you're, you know, you're funding these, you, you know, you're charging people to fly up into space and all of a sudden it's like, oh, and by the way, you're going to see a ton of UFOs. Oh, well, sign me up then. Right, exactly. So, I mean, that would be just like the greatest boon for business ever. So it would make sense that they wouldn't keep their mouth shut about it. Right. Well, you know, you make a good point is that, you know, there's no one in the in the private sector who would want to keep this secret. It's only in the governmental, you know, the government and, and the and the political aspect, the political parts of our uh, country that that want to keep it covered up for their own reasons. You right. know? But if someone like you say, Richard Branson, someone like that, if he had solid evidence that UFOs existed, he'd call a press conference tomorrow. Absolutely, and his ticket sales would go through the roof, and his funding would go through the roof to to keep uh, building this stuff. That's for so sure. Maybe we have to hope for that. I guess. Well, maybe. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. That's another thing, too. You never know what's going to happen. It could be solved tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 exactly. I've, I've made that point, too, on the show. You know, you just uh, – I don't I don't buy into all this sort of like, well, it's going to happen – people who tell you it's going to happen like tomorrow. It's sort of like that guy that predicted the rapture. It's just not mm – -hmm. but it could happen just out of nowhere, you know, when you don't even expect it, like how they caught Bin Laden type right, of thing. Right, exactly. You know, yeah, just someday, be... yeah, you turn on the TV and it's like, oh, man. Right. The world just changed. Right. You know, like 9-11. It's like, right. you know, no one really saw that coming, theoretically, right. obviously. We won't even get into that. Right. Now, right. <laughs> now, what's the – what's been the reaction – well, I guess the book hasn't really gotten into the hands of your fans yet, but what's been the reaction of, of them that you're, you know, going down the UFO road here in a nonfiction book after 30 fiction books in the uh, war realm? Um, well, uh, you know, so far so good. I mean, there are some people who have, uh, you know, been able to see like advanced copies of it, or just people who, 
who know that I've done this, uh, you know, it's, it really is just a uh, marrying of, of two things that I have a lot of interest in. And, and one of them is the military and one of them is UFOs. So, you know, when you read the book, um, uh, you know, I'm not a military historian, let's say, but, you know, I, I, I do know some things about, you know, uh, the military and how the military has won the wars and so on and so forth. So I try to put a lot of the UFO sightings into the, a military context, and um, which a lot of the people who have read my fiction books will hopefully enjoy. So, so far, so good. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's the... You know, what's the predominant sort of, like, are your readers like former military guys, or are they just like military buffs, or, or the all of the above type of thing? Yeah, all of the above. A lot of, a lot of uh, people who are on active duty, um, you know, buy uh, our books at, at, at PXs and, you know, online and so on. But a lot of retired military people, and then, um, I mean, I get probably two or three, you know, I guess you would call them fan letters, even though they're emails these days, probably two or three a day. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, and, and the people from all walks of life, and, and a lot of a lot of kids, too, uh, because, you know, jet fighters are, are sexy, and, you know, people like to go fast and Top Gun and so on. Um, but, um, you know, I think the majority of people uh, that read my books are either in the military or retired military, a lot of law enforcement people. I get letters from law enforcement people, too. So um, it's really a mixed bag, but... So far, when people know that I've done this, uh, you know, the reaction has been, uh, you know, positive. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what how they react once the book's out and they can get, read it and everything. Because, you know, you're sort of like a new voice in a way to all this. And you're sort of reaching an audience that may not have been introduced to the whole UFO phenomenon yet. So you could open up a whole lot of doors that we hadn't considered before. You know, maybe guys who read the book or are in the service or just got out of the service or something like that, they may read the book and be like, well, here's someone, you know, I know Mac from reading his books. I know him well. You know, maybe I can, you know, maybe here's someone I can talk to. Here's someone I can tell my story to finally. So let's let's hope something like that happens. Well, we're going to have something when the website finally comes online, which will be ufosandwildtime.com. There is going to be a section there where People can, you know, you can, you'll be able to push a button and, you know, a field will, will appear where you can write me an email and tell me about sightings you've had. Um, because as you say, maybe what will happen is, you know, these ex-military guys will say, well, you know, I had never been able to tell anyone this before. Well, if they can send me an email and, 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 you know, give me more stories, that'd be great. You know, that'd be great. The more, the better. I think the more people who report these things, the closer we'll be to finding out what the heck is going on. Right, right. And the difficult part, too, with like a book like this is, uh, you know, the. I mean, you do have some stories from the first Gulf War, but it's like there's always this lag time, too, because guys who are in the service now probably aren't going to want to talk to you about their UFO signs till they get out, if, if at all. You know what I mean? So we're dealing with sort of a uh, – you almost have to wait a generation to get new stories, in a sense, uh, from the contemporary wars, if you will. You know what I mean? Because I'm not hearing really anything from, like, Afghanistan or something no. like that yet. No, no, but I will tell you this is that what what I have found out and what other UFO researchers have they've all told me is that um, these people won't talk to you on the record, but off the record they will tell you unbelievably fantastic stories. Yeah. Um, somebody told me, you know, that they heard off the record, for instance, that um, you know before nine eleven, if there was some kind of uh, you know a, a a blip on the radar screen coming in from Canada or from the Atlantic Ocean or something, um, they wouldn't necessarily 
send up scrambled jets to go look at it. They would just figure, well, it's a it's a airplane off course or something's wrong with the radar or whatever. But in the nine post nine eleven world, you have to scramble all the time now. And what this person told me, the pilots told him, once again off the record, is that there have been thousands of encounters since 9-11 of jets going up and looking for things, thinking that they might be a terrorist plane or something, and finding out that they're UFOs. Well, wasn't there something that kind of happened like that, uh, where they, like, expanded the restricted airspace over the White House after 9-11, and then there was, like, a huge flap of something came over, and, and they did scramble jets and everything, and they never could find what it was, and they mm-hmm. said it was, like, leaves or something crazy, like a geese right. or something. You know, when, I mean, when you hear stories like that, I mean, you really got to, you know, think twice. You know, that's the, if it sounds ridiculous, that means there's just someone spinning it, you know, that something's happened and either they know about it or they don't know about it. And, um, you know, take your pick. But, yeah, I mean, once again, according to this this person, is that now that we scramble jets or everything, there's more eyes in the sky and these pilots are running into more UFOs than, than ever. But you will never hear about it. You will never hear about it on the record. But off the record, uh, from what I've heard, is these people will talk to you off the record. Well, that's always the case, especially with the UFO phenomenon. Yes, like right. The best right. stuff almost always comes off the record, which is unfortunate because it's like... Right, because your career would be gone, and airline pilots, too. A lot of airline pilots are actually ex-military pilots. Same thing. I mean, for an airline pilot to report that he's seen a UFO, uh, you know, y- your career is not going to get any better. Let's put it that way. So <laughs> the result is that a lot of them won't say it, Yet they're seeing them, but they don't dare report it uh, because of the stigma attached to reporting a UFO. If that stigma wasn't there, we'd know a whole lot more about this. But it's there, and and it would be very hard to get rid of it. Right, right. Plus, there's like a law in place too. I think that they can't report it or something like that. The JNAP. Uh, uh, I don't know the exact number for it, but it's like something like JNAP. I don't know if it's the Air Force or if it's uh, or if it's commercial pilots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, they, 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 someone, like I say, someone somewhere has made sure that, that, you know, you put a tight lid on these things and, and the, and the word out there unofficially, but, you know, uh, everyone knows it is, don't talk about these things. Right. It's unfortunate. It's, it's, you know, well, you sort of make the case here, uh, that, you know, the only way we're going to get to the bottom of this, of this is through some kind of scientific inquiry because a government regulated thing is just not going to work. Right. So. Right. Well, hopefully, bad, but that's the tra- that's the case for sure. Right, right. And the whole idea of a civilian scientific organization looking into it—we've tried that for like the last fifty years, and it hasn't gotten us any further than, really, much further than we were at the beginning of the whole mess. So. Right, right. You know, because scientists, most scientists, they 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 build their career on one thing. You know, one thing, whether it's studying the atom, whether it's you know studying the stars, whatever, and and they stick with that. And 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 you know, no one's going to. Just take that flying leap to say, all of a sudden, I'm going to start, you know, go into this crazy area of UFOs because they'll be laughed out of the scientific community for one thing. And 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 the scientific community, the whole thing is based on funding. Where do you get your funding? And no one's going to fund the massive amounts of money that would be needed to really look into this thing. So, yeah, no one in this country, anyway, that I can see. But once again, you never know. Tomorrow's a new day. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. I did want to actually. I did want to ask you because I was looking at the website uh, macmaloney.com. That's the one that has the Mac facts, right? Yes. Yeah. And so your brother worked at Area 51. Yes. Is there? What well, can you tell us about that, if anything? Um, 
Well, uh, this is the same brother, and um, he was uh, stationed at Nellis Air Force Base, which is, anyone who's gone to Las Vegas knows that Nellis Air Force Base, which is one of the largest Air Force bases that we have, is right at the very end of the famous Las Vegas Strip. And he was stationed there, and um, this was in the um, early 70s. And he just, he was a jet engine mechanic. He was the, he was a crew chief for a jet engine mechanic repair uh, unit. And one day he was just told, all right, you, you're going to someplace other than the base to do some repairs on a jet. So uh, they were put in a um, uh, an airplane, civilian airplane, flown out. Now, this is before Area 51 really became famous. I mean, Area 51 is kind of funny because it's the most famous top secret base there is. Yeah. Everyone knows about it just about. I think Oprah actually did a story on Area 51, so everyone knows about it. But back in the early 70s, not so much. So they were put on a plane. They flew out there. They landed. To him, it was just an air base. And what they were doing at the time was somehow or other, the Air Force had gotten a hold of some real mix where they got them Russian-built MiGs. And they, what they were doing, they were flying them out there and having U.S. pilots dogfight with them and see the capabilities of the dogfight. It, it's kind of like the precursor to Top Gun. Yeah. But they're actually doing it with real MiGs that they somehow got a hold of. And my brother was out there to fix one of the uh, Air Force planes that had broken down that was in this program. To So he didn't see any flying saucers or anything, but he, he did say that the, the two odd things were that – when they got off the plane and they were going into the the ops building, there was a sign there that says, "Remember, you were never here," <laughs> which was interesting. And the other interesting thing was, and and he still couldn't figure this out. He said, even though you know Area 51 is out in the middle of the Nevada desert, out in the middle of nowhere, one of the driest places in the world because it's actually a dry lake bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, for some reason, they had lawns out there. They had grass lawns around a lot of the buildings, and he just thought this was odd. It's like. Why would they have grass growing out here? And who takes care of it? Who waters it? You're out in the middle of the desert. So he thought that was unusual, too. So the sign and the fact that there were lawns out there uh, struck him as being, you know, kind of odd. And then later on, he realized, you know, he knew it as Groom Lake, but, uh, you know, eventually. But then eventually the whole mystique of Area 51, you know, uh, uh, grew up and, and, um, and, he was there. He 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 was there. I also know a woman who uh, was stationed at at Nellis, and she was the public information officer for Area 51 for the Air Force. Yet she had never been there. <laughs> she had never been there. She had never talked to anyone who worked there. She, yet she was the Air Force public um, public relations officer for Area 51, and her entire job was turning down media people who wanted a tour of the base. <laughs> wow! Four years she did that. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Very strange. Well, I'm glad I asked you about that because that had some new, interesting sort of little details here to the Area 51 mystique that I never heard about, especially that lawn thing. That's yeah, figure out why would they have lawns out there? People cutting them with mowers and everything. Weird. It yeah. seems like an extra added expense that would be unnecessary, but. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we, we've. You know, we've talked about how you've written uh, over 30 books here, and, and this is your first sort of foray into the UFO realm. What's next for you? Would you plan on sort of uh, staying in UFOs at least or keeping one foot in the in, in the field, or, or are you going back to fiction and, and uh, you know, maybe someday come back to UFOs? 
Right. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, to tell you the truth, I really, I'm not sure. Uh, I have a fiction book coming out in January called The Pirate Hunters. It's a series I'm doing about special ops guys fighting the pirates off of Somalia. Oh, cool. Which a lot of people like. And, and, and I gotta tell you that doing, researching and writing a nonfiction book is about ten times more work than writing a fiction, than writing a novel. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't realize that until I started it and I said, oh man, what have I got myself into here? <laughs> but the thing is, is that it was really, fascinating and interesting to actually work with real stuff, if you know what I mean, yeah. and to put together something that wasn't fiction. So, I, you know, if I had my choice, I would, you know, my next book would be a, a UFO book, you know, if we can come up with something that, you know, uh, an idea that's along the lines of this, a lot of people seem to like this idea, if we can come up with something that was, you know, quote, unquote, as good, I, w I would love to do it. But right now, you know, it's, it just means a, t a talk with my editor and to see where you know we want to go next, but if I had my choice, I would do another UFO book. Yes, awesome. Yeah, so people should probably just like keep an eye out, and hopefully uh, down the line we'll get more from Mac Maloney in the world of UFOs. I hope so. Very nice. Well, Mac, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and and you know giving us so much time. It's really been quite a pleasure talking to you. It, you bring a sort of an everyman quality to this, and sort of. Uh, an outsider's perspective in a way that I find refreshing and, and really cool uh, as someone who sort of started looking into this and is just as mystified as the rest of us. And, and you know, we need more people to look into this and we need more people to investigate this. And, and you know, you're opening it up, I hope, to a whole nother audience in a way to the, the folks who are checking out your previous books and stuff like that. And as I said, fantastic book for the holiday season, not just for people, uh, you know, who are trying to quiet down their unruly uncle who gives them a hard time at the Christmas party about their interest in UFOs. But it's really, uh, it's from Penguin, and it's a nice little sort of handheld book. It's good to, uh, you're going to be doing a lot of traveling over the holidays, I'm sure, folks, and this is the kind of book that you're really going to want to have with you because it's nice, easy to carry around, nice, easy to read, and uh, quite, a, quite a fast read as well. I was surprised uh, as I got into it. Just I was done before I knew it. So uh, very compelling and, and a quick read and very well written, uh, of course, as you would expect from a guy who's written over 30 books. So, I mean, I can't put it over enough. UFOs in wartime. Check it out, folks. It's available right now all over the place. So, uh, you know, punch it into Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and uh, you'll easily be able to get your hands on it. Do you have a preferred place where people should go to pick it up? Nope. You know, Amazon is fine, or any bookstore, you know, will be fine. Awesome. Um, awesome. Either way. And and it's, it's yeah, as you say, you know, it, it's in book form, but also, of course, in Kindle form as well. Oh, excellent. Yeah, because everybody's on the Kindle thing now. i gotta get, I got to get into that. But, uh, yeah, so it's on the Kindle as well. So people who have uh, that capability, uh, you know, you can pick it up on the Kindle. So, like I said, can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Mac. It's been a real pleasure, and hopefully we will connect very soon because I know you're in the Massachusetts area. Right. Thanks a lot, Tim. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it, and, uh, you know, anytime, uh, I'd love to be back on. Thanks very much. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Mac Maloney for coming on the show. Be sure to check out his website, www.macmaloney.com, and be sure to pick up a copy of his new book, UFOs in Wartime. Check it out. Moving right along now, first, let's take care of some in-house notes here. Let's expand a little bit on the expansion of Season 6, and then we'll get into some listener feedback. Really, the gist of it all is the year is coming to a close very fast, and trying to pin down a season finale guest that is befitting of the BOA Audio season finale tradition was becoming more and more difficult as we got deeper and deeper into the holiday season, and 
truth be told, I didn't want to just end season six and then roll right into season seven. I need that break between seasons to really digest what we just finished and think about where I want to go for the next season of BOA Audio. So it all kind of made perfect sense here in the last week or so that, you know, season six kicked off, of course, with Jim Mars and then pretty quickly rolled into our annual holiday episodes. So we're going to kind of bookend it all here by rolling into our annual holiday episodes, maybe tacking on a couple more interviews at the beginning of 2012, and then wrapping things up, hopefully, at the end of January 2012. And then we'll take February off and launch Season 7 at the end of February. That's the plan that's on the books right now, and it makes a lot more sense to me schedule-wise, and it is a lot easier for me to navigate. So with that said, of course, that means that the next episode you're going to hear is the 7th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. And of course, by now, I hope you know about our new tradition, which we started a couple years ago, and that is Ask Stanton Friedman. The window of opportunity on that one is closing fairly quickly. We've only got about four days left to accept questions and I'll make it easy for you folks. Just email them to me or send them to me via Facebook, and they'll be included in the list. The rules are pretty simple. You're allowed one question for the father of modern-day ufology. It can't be inflammatory or insulting. It's got to be a real question, and we don't want to hear about your UFO sighting. No offense. That's not what Ask Stanton Friedman is about. It's not Tell Stanton Friedman. It's Ask Stanton Friedman. So send your questions to... B-O-A audio at hotmail.com or just punch me up on Facebook and send your question via that method or join up at the BOA forum where there is already a thread for the 2011 edition of Ask Stanton Friedman. I want to hear your questions. We've already got a ton of really interesting and thought-provoking questions that I cannot wait to lob at Stanton. It's going to be an amazing conversation We're taping that in a few days, and that's going to be the next edition of BOA Audio. With all that said, now let's open up the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. We got a ton of emails regarding the Bruce Rocks interview. People loved this conversation. Really, the mailbag was overflowing with Ruxian letters. So we're going to tackle a couple of those as we go along. But first, there's one here dealing with another in-house note, so we'll take care of that as well. First one here comes from Dean, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. First off, keep up the good work of getting the word out. I tried the MP3 part A and B a couple of times, but no joy. The full episode MP3 downloads the full 72 megabytes, but the others are only a placeholder of 366k or so. I'm sure that you are aware of this by now, but just in case, thought I would let you know. Thanks for your work. Sincerely, Dean. I don't really know what the numbers there mean. I kind of have an idea what the 72 means, but I have no idea what the 366 is. But I know exactly what Dean's talking about. And that is, for all of the seasons leading up to Season 6, we've just pulled all the A and B MP3s, the half-show MP3s, as we call them. The gist of all that is really the big audio transfer project did not allow for the half-show MP3s to be saved. So anyone looking for part A and part B of any previous season, they're not going to be able to find them. They don't exist anymore online. 
much like the Lost cast, and we're not going to bring them back either. I mean, the the Part A and Part B concept for the MP3s was something we did when we first started the show back in, like, 2005, and it has just kind of grown to be antiquated, so we're still doing it here for Season 6, but I'm pretty sure we're going to phase out the half-show MP3s in Season 7. We've kind of led people into just downloading the full-show MP3s, and no other programs really do half-show MP3s, as far as I can tell, so it just seems as I said, like an antiquated process and just additional work for me that keeps me from getting the episodes out to folks as fast as possible. So we'll keep doing the half-show MP3s for Season 6, and then in Season 7, we're going to drop the half-shows, unless there's some overwhelming listener feedback that insists we keep the half-show MP3s going. But I like to think that most folks are pretty accustomed to the full-show MP3s at this point, regardless of how long they are. Sometimes they're like two-and-a-half-hour-long MP3s, but people seem used to them now, and I think the downloading technology has reached the point where those massive MP3s are not as big a problem as they used to be. So that's sort of where we stand on the half-show MP3s. Thanks for writing in, Dean. It's definitely something that I wanted to bring up here on the program. just needed the right outlet to do so. And as I said, if we get a whole bunch of listener feedback saying, no, 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 don't drop half shows, then I'll reconsider the decision to get rid of them for Season 7. Next email is, as I said, one of many, many letters I got regarding the Bruce Rucks interview. So happy that folks enjoyed hearing from my buddy Bruce once again. This one comes from Troy, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Just writing to say thanks for getting Bruce Rucks back on. It was an amazing conversation you and he had. I find his theory to be the most concise and logical I have heard in a very long time. The way he connected the dots gave me a few aha moments. His humbleness to say I don't know and I could be wrong is good to hear. There are too many know-it-alls in Esoterica, and we could use more researchers like Bruce Rucks. I will definitely be ordering his Architects of the Underworld book, and I'm looking forward to your next interview that you have with him. Thanks for getting down to business and rock and rolling. Sincerely, Troy. Well, thank you for writing in, Troy. Glad to hear you enjoyed the Bruce Rocks interview. I agree that his humbleness of saying when he does not know something is refreshing. A lot of people in Esoterica just sort of surmise things and don't really go out of their way to explain that they're surmising or speculating. They just say, you know, based on everything, this is what it is. And you, you don't know that for sure. But Bruce, uh, he does not go that route. I do like how Bruce is steadfast about his perspective on things, but also always willing to consider new evidence, which also is pretty refreshing from someone in Esoterica. As you said, this field is littered with know-it-alls and definitely could use more folks like Bruce Rucks. Definitely go out and get Architects of the Underworld. My copy is sitting right here on my desk, and I'm going to begin really diving into it during the Between Seasons break so we can have him back as soon as possible on Season 7. And, of course, thank you for writing in, Troy. Next email comes from Paul. No hometown listed, and here's what he has to say. Thanks for bringing back Bruce Rocks for Season 6. I've been a long-time listener of BOA, and I have found your shows to be level-headed and provocative at the same time. But I was blown away by the three-part interview with Bruce Rucks in Season 4. I bought both of Bruce's books after the interview and found Hollywood vs. the Aliens fascinating and a fun read. Architects of the Underworld, however, 
was an incredible mind-blower. Now, I'm not new to the UFO scene. I was in Michigan in 1966 and had a front-row seat for the swamp cast fiasco of J. Allen Hynek. I had my first sighting in Michigan that summer. I probably read most of the UFO books published since the 1960s, and I thought I'd heard every theory out there. But Architects of the Underworld completely changed my outlook on the subject. In my honest opinion, Mr. Rocks is one of the most original and elegant thinkers on UFOs, meaning no disrespect to Jacques Vallée, Stanton Friedman, Nick Redfern, and Greg Bishop, and all the many researchers too numerous to mention here. I think what stands out most about Mr. Rux's books is that he really does seem to allow the evidence to lead him forward in his thinking, something I wish would happen more often in Esoterica. I am now rereading most of my UFO books with Bruce's ideas as the backstory. Tim, if you're still looking for ideas for Season 7, let me humbly suggest that you read Architects of the Underworld, because you will have another three-part interview series on your hands. It is that good. I know that you catch a lot of criticism for the way you do your shows. Sir, I would not change a thing. When I was a kid and learned about Esoterica, all we had were interviewers like Joe Prine and such. One would be lucky to hear anyone's point of view, considering the amount of ridicule and vitriol being heaped upon a guest on any one of those shows. Did I say guest? Victim would be a more accurate word. If your show had been available then, I'm sure Esoterica would be light years ahead of where it is now. Thank you for being an informed and respectful interviewer. You not only honor your guests by doing so, but you also honor your audience. Keep up the excellent work. Sincerely, Paul. Paul, you have humbled me, sir. Thank you for the kind words. I really don't catch that much criticism. Uh, you know, maybe in, in the back rooms of Esoterica where people talk about me behind the scenes, but I don't get a lot of hate mail and I don't get a lot of vitriol from people, so it's perfectly fine. I've been doing this for six years, going on seven. I don't really care about the criticism at this point. I've paid my dues, and I'm driving my own mothership here. And if people want to come along for the ride, which so many of you do, and I really appreciate you doing so, that's great. If people want to sit back and rip on us for some of the weirder episodes we have, hey, fuck them. I don't care. Regarding Bruce Rocks, as I said, folks, we got tons of emails about Bruce Rocks. I'll probably end up reading a few more on the next edition of the program. That's how much email I received about this Bruce Rocks interview. He'll be back, my friends. Don't even worry about that. Bruce is an amazing guy and a good friend. And I can tell you that I've already heard back from him since the interview got posted. I don't know if I mentioned this on the show or not, but I feel so bad because Bruce sends me these emails that are like six paragraphs long, and I barely have the time to write them back. And they're just full of amazing stuff and amazing ideas and amazing observations. And I just hope that we can get him to come to BOA in a larger way in 2012, maybe write for us or do something on a more consistent basis because his stuff is amazing and his perspective on all this is tremendous, as Paul has observed. So you're preaching to the choir on this one, Paul. You're talking to one of the world's biggest Bruce Rocks fans, and I would be thrilled if we could have him on the program every season and am just amazed at what a find he was. i got to go out of my way here once again to thank Lone Gunman, longtime BOA Audio listener who suggested Bruce Rocks way, way, way back in the day, probably like four years ago this month. And I've told the story a few times before. I don't think I mentioned it on the recent Rocks return, but, you know, it took me two years or so to find Bruce Rocks and get him on the show, so 
he is definitely one of uh, my favorite guests, definitely one of my proudest achievements to have found Bruce Rucks, coaxed him to come on the show, and then had him open up and be so amazing on the program. I could go on all day here, waxing poetic and praising Bruce Rucks, but it sounds like I'd be just preaching to the choir as well. So thanks for writing in, Paul. Also, let's thank the other folks who wrote in again, Troy and Dean. Your emails were much appreciated. Since we are not contracting Season 6, since we are expanding Season 6, we've got some more room here for emails for BOA Audio listener feedback. And really, we got a ton of Bruce Rucks emails from folks. We also got a whole bunch of other emails. My email box is brimming with correspondences, but we always want more. I always want to hear what you folks have to say. So shoot me a line at boaaudio at hotmail.com. Don't forget the Ask Stanton Friedman tradition Take part in that, folks. Take an opportunity here to ask Stanton Friedman anything you like. If you want to contact me, otherwise, head on over to BOA and click the contact button or join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of discussion going on there about the world of the paranormal and pop culture as well. Plus, I am, of course, part of Facebook and Twitter, so punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L on there, and you can find me, befriend me, follow me, poke me, it's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Up next, let's thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carollin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. New stuff at the website from Leslie, new stuff coming up from Regan Lee and Bruce Pretty as well, and Richard Thomas is also working on one of his famous text interviews. So a lot of stuff in the pipeline at BOA, and we're working on some tweaks to the BOA main page, maybe making some interesting changes there. I'm not going to talk too much about it, because the last time we were plugging BOA 2.0, it took us like six months to get it done. So we have got some ideas percolating, and hopefully you'll see some changes at BOA in 2012 for the writers and for the layout of the website. Nonetheless, we say it week in and week out, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to Banal of America and you're not reading the columns at BOA, then you're only getting half the story. Banalofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where I ring a little bell and ask you to make a donation into my proverbial red bucket. Anyway... (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, it's donation request time. So if you can make a donation to Banal of America and to BOA Audio, that would be greatly appreciated. How do you do that? That's simple. Go to BinalofAmerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe and secure. But what if you don't trust PayPal? What if you're leery of what they're up to? And you just want to make a donation via snail mail. I perfectly understand, and that's why we have the BOA P.O. Box. The address for that is Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. So altogether, the address is Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, 
Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. And if you shoot us a donation to the snail mail address, please make your donation payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America, because my bank will not cash BOA donations, and include a phone number or an email for some correspondence from me to say thanks. I know it's the holiday season. I know that you have gifts you have to buy for people you don't even like. I mean, come on. The obnoxious cousin. The terrible neighbor. You gotta get them something. It's just this whole obligatory thing that no one likes. Hopefully, you find a place for BOA on your Christmas list, and you can help us out and make a donation. It would be hugely appreciated, and it would help us get into the black as we close the book on Season 6. As always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Been All of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next time on BOA Audio, there's no surprise on this one, my friends. It is, of course, the 7th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. I can't say too much about this because it hasn't even been taped yet, but it is scheduled to be taped next week. We already plugged the Ask Stanton Friedman tradition. I can't push it enough, folks. Be a part of the annual holiday special. Send me your questions for Stanton Friedman. I should note, of course, that all questions will be handled in the order they are received. So if you're listening to this and you send one in two weeks, it's not going to get read. Maybe I'll put it in a file for the 8th annual holiday special. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Next time on the program, 7th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Can you believe it's been seven years of this amazing holiday tradition? I am so thrilled Talked to Stan last week to set up the interview, and it was like the Christmas music got better. The eggnog tasted more delicious. It was like the holidays are here. They are real. They have truly arrived because the holiday special is going to happen once again. That's next time on BOA Audio. We're going to obviously get it to you before Christmas, hopefully the Thursday or Friday before the holiday weekend. So stay tuned to BOA for that one. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Mac Maloney for coming on the show. Check out his new book, UFOs in Wartime. Thanks to Paul, Troy, and Dean for writing in for BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, big, big thanks to all you folks out there, the BOA Audio listeners, the hardcore listeners who are listening to me right now as I'm getting mush mouth and just rambling here. You guys are awesome, and your support is just tremendously appreciated. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. I hope you're all having a great lead-up to the holiday season. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.